All right, well, uh, you guys lucked out today. Uh, as you look at your notes, you're going to see there's four points. Uh, I have three pages of notes. When I tell my wife I have three pages of notes, she rolls her eyes because she knows what that means. Um, uh, I think today we were supposed to be our second part of our discipleship of the servant king. Today we are going to actually be in part two, yes, but we'll also have a part three next week. Uh, as we look at what we're going to look at today, uh, so I say all that to say you're looking at your notes, we won't fill them all in this week. So, hey, this is a plug for next week. So come this week, find out half of this, uh, this specific sermon, and then next week come back and we'll finish. Uh, and that's what we'll be doing. And today we're going to talk about some tough, well, a tough subject, um, and there's a couple things that uh, pastors, Bible teachers don't necessarily look forward to teaching. Uh, one of those I'm sure you've heard of is about money. We're not talking about money today, although there are some things here that definitely could relate to that. Uh, another one is uh, parenting, because you mess with a parent and make them feel like they're not doing something right and you are a bad person. And then finally, um, one of the harder things for me to talk about, and I would say in society today, is to talk about the issue of divorce. Uh, divorce is a huge issue in our society today. I don't think anybody would deny that. Um, the statistics, you know what they say, and I don't know how much we can trust statistics, but we know that 50% they say of all marriages will end in divorce. I think that is actually going up, and that's, that's Christians and non-Christians alike, and we look around our world and we see that every, every, there's, every area of society has been affected by divorce. Um, and there's been consequences to that. And, we, and I would say that most of us sitting here today, I would say that there's not a doubt that there might be just a small minority that is here that is not in some way, shape, or form affected by divorce. Maybe you're a child of divorce. Maybe you've been divorced. Uh, maybe... Uh, your friend, your sister, your brother, who knows, has been part of a divorce or has been affected by a divorce. And we look around our lives and we can see that this is an issue that has become a huge problem. And the thing is, we look at divorce, I, I want to readily acknowledge that there are many people, even in our body, that have been divorced, some that have been divorced and remarried. Uh, and I know that, that this is why this becomes a sensitive issue, because there's lots of different ways to go about talking about divorce. Uh, today, we're going to look at Jesus' teaching on divorce in a, in a bigger context of what Jesus is talking about. And I think as we look at why divorce is even brought up, we're going to see that there's, this, there's something that is truly, uh, this is an example of a way that people can try to um, not follow in the way of self-sacrifice. And we'll talk about that. But I want to right off the bat just say that as we talk about divorce, there is in no way any type of judgment or any type of uh, guilt that I want to lay down as we talk about divorce. We'll talk about it very candidly, very openly. Uh, there are some things that we will have to talk about. I'm not going to go through all the specifics. I'm not going to look at every single passage. We're not going to take uh, hours to really unpack all of the scriptural teaching on divorce, but we will have to talk about it as Jesus makes a point of it. And as he's asked a question. And we're going to look at that today as we go into Mark chapter 10. Uh, Mark chapter 10, my, my goal was to look through verses 1 through 45. I believe this morning we will only be getting through verse 16. 
Um, and uh, part of that reason, too, is because I want to go back and look at what we've seen in Mark, what we saw last week, that will give us the context as we roll forward into chapter 10. We see this talk about divorce, and then we see talking about children, and we're going to try to see how all that plays together. And then next week, we'll look at a few more things here in chapter 10 as well. Uh, so let's start with some review. And if you guys have been with us, I know this is getting boring by this time, but I really think it's important that we remember where we're at and where we've been. Uh, so far in the book of Mark, we have seen that Jesus is the suffering servant king who is truly God and truly man. He's the suffering servant king. Yes, king, and yet a king who would suffer and serve for those he loves. <clears throat> we see that Jesus has shown his authority time and time again, and this has brought opposition and pressure. There are people that are coming against, and we will see that again today as we go to chapter 10. The opposition continues for Jesus. And there's also pressure of those who are following him. Pressure for all sorts of reasons and putting pressure even on Jesus to do things that he's not even ready to do. Uh, we also see then, even in the process of all this happening, Jesus teaches again and again and demonstrated his kingship. He's taught that the kingdom has come and he has shown that that is true through his works, through his miracles, through his teaching. He has shown that he indeed is the king that we already talked about, that suffering servant king. In the process of this, we see Jesus was followed by some and rejected by others who hold true tradition. He's followed by some, rejected by others. This is the theme of Jesus' ministry. Not everyone, even when they see his miracles and they hear his teaching about kingship, not everyone is ready to, to jump in the boat with Jesus. There, there's, there's rejection. There are people that are trying to cast doubt upon Jesus' kingship and saying he's not the messiah instead he's a servant of satan and he, so he's been this this has been his ministry up to chapter 10 we've seen this time and time again that jesus is being rejected even as some follow him they would end up even rejecting him the same ones that would start by following we saw a couple weeks ago jesus includes everyone in his ministry he reached out to both jew and gentile alike women those who are outcasts those who have no hope or have no type of status in the eyes of the world jesus says is important. Jesus say they are important and they matter to me and I am here for them as well as those who, the, who think that they deserve the Messiah. And then finally, uh, in context of what we've been looking at the last several weeks, Jesus reveals his identity, that he is the Messiah, but also in, reveals the mission of the Messiah. And we, got, we can't miss this. He is revealed in chapter 8, and in part of chapter 9, he has revealed the very specific truth that indeed he is the Messiah, but in the process of telling his disciples that he is the chosen one, the anointed one, the Messiah who would bring salvation, he also is telling them and helping them see that what this means is not what they think it means. That Jesus did not come to overthrow Rome and to give them power and glory and uh, over the world. That is not why Jesus came. Jesus begins to tell them about suffering and dying. And that Jesus would have to suffer. He would be rejected. He would die. And he would rise again. Jesus, before it even happens, is telling his disciples the gospel. And he's telling people, this is what to expect. I will suffer. I will die and then he talks about his resurrection, what they won't even get that at all until he actually resurrects. But Jesus is telling them ahead of time and trying to get them to see that the mission of the Messiah is not their own mission. And then as we've looked at then the last couple weeks, 
is that if that is true of Jesus, if his mission as the Messiah is to suffer and to die and to be rejected and yet get new life at the end of all of it, we are called to follow in his footsteps. And if his mission is suffering and service, then our mission should be suffering and service. And so we've looked at, if you remember back in chapter 8, where Jesus is very specific, and Jesus comes, and Jesus says, look, in chapter 9, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 8, chapter 9, he keeps talking about the fact that they need to give their lives for, for him. That Jesus has called us to follow him through self-sacrifice. Jesus has called us to follow him through self-sacrifice. Sacrifice. And this is not what everybody is ready to hear. But yet it is exactly what he says should happen. And so Jesus has been talking about self-sacrifice. And then in chapter 9, we see, last week we saw three ways that we can follow Jesus through self-sacrifice. To sacrifice ourselves, not physically, but to give up what is most important our selfish life, and instead give it to Jesus. What does it profit the man if he gains the whole world and loses his, whole, his soul? That's what Jesus just got done saying. He's saying, look, you need to follow me, not man's way. You need to sacrifice your selfish life and live for me. And so then Jesus starts telling in chapter 9, last week we looked at different ways that self-sacrifice works itself out. And we saw that the, the discipleship of self-sacrifice, discipleship means sacrificing self Dependence. Self-dependence. We looked at that in chapter 9, starting in verse 14. We see that Jesus, the disciples are, were trying to cast out a demon and they did not pray and ask for God's power. They depended upon themselves to be able to cast out a demon and it didn't work. And then we also see the idea there that we need to have faith. Part of sacrificing ourselves dependence is to have faith in Jesus not that he can not just saying oh if you can not believing that if he's able but we believe if you will God I know you can do this but if you will please do instead of well if you can do something about this Jesus then go ahead and do it faith is expecting and knowing that he can but the question is will he it's not questioning whether he can and that is what faith is all about we also saw then the discipleship means self, sacrificing self-importance. Verses 33 through 42. Self-importance. We see here in these, in these verses that a couple of his disciples, uh, they're talking amongst themselves and what they're talking about is they're, they're talking uh, about who is going to be the greatest. Who is going to sit on the right hand and who is going to sit on the left in your glory? Who is going to be in the position of influence? Who is going to be the most important? And we saw that discipleship means sacrificing this idea of self-importance. That it's not how great you are, but it's how you serve and how you put yourself under. And we'll see that more next week. And finally, we see so far in chapter 9 that Jesus says that discipleship means sacrificing self-indulgence. This is this passage where it talks about uh, it talks about giving up. Uh, it talks about giving up um, 
our sin and making it so severe and making it so important that we don't sin any longer, that Jesus talks about plucking out your eye and cutting off your hand. Weird stuff if you take it out of context. But what Jesus is saying is take sin seriously in chapter 9, verses 43 through 50. And so that's where we've been so far. Back in chapter 9 where they were even talking about how important they are. Remember they also talked about they had issues of competition. There's just things that people need to give up in order for self-sacrifice. And in today's text as we go into Mark chapter 10, we will see that there are four more ways in chapter 10 that self-sacrifice is seen in the life of a follower of Jesus. We start with what seems like an odd question from the Pharisees. But this interaction will show us what, that we must sacrifice something in our discipleship, and that is our self-justification. Discipleship means today sacrificing self-justification. What does this mean? Well, I talk about self-justification. The idea of self-justification is when we do something that we know we might not, we shouldn't do, but yet we find a way to make it sound like it's okay. You know, I know I shouldn't... Uh, I don't know, I'm just coming to the top of my head. I'm not specifically pointing anybody out. I don't know what your personal life is like. But it's saying, uh, you know, uh, I know cheating on my taxes is technically lying, but the government doesn't really deserve what they get, so I think it's okay for me not to fully pay all my taxes. All right, that's just one simple example. But see, another example comes out as we look at chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. So let's go there, Mark chapter 10. And we're going to look at the first 12 verses to start with. And you're, you might be starting to question what, where we're going or why this section even comes here. Jesus is talking about discipleship and then all of a sudden divorce comes up. Let's read it. Chapter 10 of Mark. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as his was custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him and asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote to you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God created them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the, house of the, in, in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Like I said, we get to this passage, and it's like, okay, we've been talking about discipleship, self-sacrifice, following Jesus, and now all of a sudden there's 12 verses about divorce. Where does that come from? Why is it there? I believe that in the context of what Jesus is showing and teaching his disciples about self-sacrifice, about discipleship, I believe this goes perfectly into it, but we have to understand the context. In chapter 10, the first thing we see, verses 1 through 12, is that the Pharisees test Jesus on his view of divorce. Pharisees test Jesus on his view of divorce. Listen, this is not the first time the Pharisees have come to Jesus. And by, no, by now you should know that when the Pharisees come to Jesus, they're not there just looking for information or trying to learn. Don't ever fall for the fact that you think these Pharisees somehow are, are just curious, just trying to figure things out, just trying to see where Jesus is coming from. That is not the case. 
when the Pharisees approach Jesus, it's always to test him, uh, to accuse him, to find a way to belittle him. That is their point. And what is the point here? When the Pharisees come up in order to test him, we're told in chapter 2, or verse 2, it is, lawful, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to get him into a place where he's going to have to contradict himself or contradict God's word or contradict Moses. That's what they're really trying to get at because if they can have him do any of those things, then they can prove that he's either a liar, he's against God, or he's against Moses. Any one, any one of those is good for the Pharisees because then they can cast doubt upon him as a Messiah. And so they're testing Jesus. And what they're really seeing is who would he side with about what justifies a divorce? This question is a bigger question than just should someone divorce their wife. If you look back in Matthew chapter 19, I actually would encourage you to, leap to just to flip back there to Matthew chapter 19. This is a parallel passage. It gives us a little more details about the interaction that Jesus had with, with the Pharisees when it talks about uh, divorce. But I want to read from chapter 19, verse 3, a fuller version of what the Pharisees actually asked Jesus. In chapter 19, verse 3 of Matthew, And Pharisees came up to him, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So what are they really asking? The Pharisees are asking Jesus very clearly. They are asking Jesus, what gives us the right to divorce? What makes divorce okay? That's really what they're asking. What can we do to make it so that divorce will be okay? They are trying to find a way to justify their actions because many in society are divorcing. There was half of society that said uh, that uh, you could divorce for any reason. In Deuteronomy 24.1, which is going to reference Moses, that's where Moses talks about divorce. <clears throat> and in Deuteronomy 24.1, it simply says that if a man marries a woman and finds indecency in her, then he can write her a certificate of divorce and send her on her way. That's what Deut Deuteronomy chapter 24, 1 says. So the question then became of Jesus' day, there was a debate among different rabbinical schools, what is indecency? There was one school that said indecency is anything the man finds that he doesn't like. Like if this woman, uh, I, I read this one, one paraphrase that was made about, the, about this belief was if a woman burns somebody, a man's dinner and he finds that dinner not satisfactory, then he can send her out and divorce her. There was another group that, that would say the only reason for divorce would be for marital unfaithfulness, specifically even in the betrothal period, that if you found out and on your wedding night that that woman was not was not a virgin, was not chaste, that you then could put her away. <clears throat> and there was some question then, what is the reasoning to be able to divorce? That is what is being asked. The Pharisees are testing Jesus. They think no matter how he answers, he's going to incriminate himself. Either he's going to go against Moses, he's going to go against the Pharisees, he's going to go against his own word, the God's word. They think they have him trapped and then Jesus does something that he always does. They shouldn't be surprised and neither should we. Jesus, Jesus answers and contradicts their selfish question by getting to the very heart of the issue. Here back in chapter 10 of Mark, he does talk about did, what did Moses command you. Notice that when they answer, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. 
So then Jesus answers. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall, not leave, shall leave his father and mother and, to, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one. Where therefore, whatever God therefore has joined together, let man, not man separate. What does Jesus say? Jesus answers with God's words. He answers with God's words. He goes back to what God said about marriage. Not what Moses said. Not what the Pharisees say. Not what they want him to say. Not anything else. He goes back and and goes right back to the very beginning. All the way back to Genesis. Uses his own words. Uses God's word to say that you can't just base your view on divorce based on what Moses said in Deuteronomy. And his reasoning for that is hardness of heart. Moses permitted divorce on some grounds. Why was it permitted? It was not commanded, by the way. It was permitted. Why would it be permitted? Well, it was to protect people. So men couldn't just trample over women. It was to protect women. It was to bring order to society. But the truth of the matter is, uh, the truth of the matter of all of this is, is that sin... The fall of man created a hardness of heart. In other words, divorce is going to happen because sin is in the world. Divorce is going to happen. That's why we see it so prevalent. God's basically, he's told us. And that's why Deuteronomy is there. Because no matter what law you make, divorce will happen because people are broken and people are hard. That doesn't make it right. That doesn't make it okay. It does not mean, that does not make it something that we should pursue. But what it does mean is that it's going to happen. And we have to understand that as part of life. And that's why Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce to give protection to the woman and to create order in society. But Jesus wants to make it very clear that from the very beginning this was not God's plan, that divorce was never, ever something that God would permit. It was against his original plan for marriage, completely against his original plan. And yes, sin messed that up, but God's perfect plan for marriage was for a man and a woman to be joined together, to become two people, to become one flesh, to be joined forever And that the only way that separation would be able to be torn apart would be from God. And that's through death. And that is the whole point of of what Jesus is saying as he goes back to Genesis. You see, the Pharisees were looking for a way to justify themselves. They were looking for a way to find loopholes again. We've seen them do this before around God's plan. They're trying to say, what can we do to get around what God's plan is? And Jesus says, it's not about how you can get around it, but what do you believe truly about God's words and God's intention? You see, in all of this, Jesus sets a higher standard than man's. Jesus sets a higher standard than man's standard. And what Jesus answers when they ask him, hey, what, what are the right grounds? What are grounds that we can be divorced? Tell us. What do you, what do you, who do you agree with? What do you think? What, how can we be divorced? What, is, what gives us the right to be divorced? And Jesus is very clear and he says the standard of God is that divorce and remarriage should not happen. That is the standard. That is the hope. That is the ultimate. And really what Jesus is saying is that divorce and remarriage should not be pursued. In other words, I would, I would frame it like this. The focus 
of a married person, and even those who are thinking about being married, so don't just shut off because you're not married, is the focus should be how to fight for marriage, not how to get out of marriage. The focus should be how to fight for marriage, how to stay married, not how to get out of it. See, the the wrong question is being asked. And Jesus says it very clearly. He says, look, what God has joined together, man, let not man separate. It is wrong to separate what God has joined and it will lead to consequences. I've heard this, this phrase before and I don't remember exactly how it works and I don't remember where I heard it. But basically, if you were to take super glue and super glue your hands together, right, the two hands become one for a while, uh, and eventually as you work and you work and you work and you rip your hands apart, there's going to be damage. Both hands are going to be scarred. Both hands are going to be bloodied. Both hands are going to be harmed. The idea is, is when man decides to take what God has put together and to rip it apart, it's going to leave consequences. It shouldn't surprise us the, the world around us and family living and the way people view marriage and the way people view family is completely destroyed today in today's society because it makes sense. There are scars, there are wounds that have been created because people in this world and even some Christians have decided to say divorce is an option and it's something that I can pursue and therefore they are ripping apart and they are creating wounds. How do I know that Jesus is setting a higher standard? You know, he says all this here. He, then he talks to the disciples in chapter 10, or verse 10. And he says, uh, they ask, what do you mean by all this? And he says, what, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus is being very clear to the disciples. Yes, what I said is what you think I said. That sin, that, that divorce and remarriage is a result of sin. There's no question. And sin is there. Now back to Matthew chapter 19. I hope you kept your finger there. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. But if you want to go back to Matthew 19, we see it even more clearly. What the disciples actually ask Jesus. He says about this divorce, he says about uh, remarriage, he says it's born of sin. In 19 chapter 10, I'm sorry, I keep saying chapter. 19 verse 10. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, It is better not to marry. And he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. And then he talks about eunuchs. The disciples understand what Jesus is saying. The disciples understand, whoa, Jesus, if you're saying that nothing should separate a marriage and that divorce really isn't something to be pursued, then, wow, we shouldn't even be married. And Jesus basically says, yeah. Because marriage is hard. Marriage is something to fight for. And it's not something you can just run away with when you decide that you're done. And the disciples understood that Jesus was raising the standard. You see, the Pharisees said that there are ways that you can get out of this. Jesus said, no, look to God's standard and live for God's standard. That is the goal of marriage. Not to try to get out of it, but to fight for it. And that's what Jesus says. He raises the standards. And so what we see, and I'm going to say a little more on divorce, because this is a bigger issue than what I've just said. But what we see so far in this first section about Jesus talking about divorce, I want to be very clear that 
he's talking, yes, about divorce, but this is just one example of how we can justify ourselves. Find a way to do something that God has not permitted, God has not planned for. I'm going to give some examples in just a minute, but before I do that, I want to talk about divorce a little more. Because I, I don't want to just leave it, because anybody here who's been divorced or anybody who's facing divorce, you're thinking, you're feeling guilty or terrible. That's not the point. I want to talk about divorce for just a little bit longer because I think it's important. You see, Matthew 19 that we were just reading, it is a fuller picture of what Jesus says as he's talking about divorce. And in Matthew 19, it leads to thoughts that adultery is a possible grounds for divorce. That if someone is persistently cheating or there's sexual immorality in a relationship, that there are biblical grounds to make it so that it would be okay, that it would be permitted to divorce. Notice I use the word permitted, not commanded, not expected, but permitted. 1 Corinthians 7 and we won't read all that today, but if you're taking notes. So in Matthew 19, we see this idea. He says, uh, if whoever divorces and marries another except for sexual immorality. Uh, so, I mean, he makes that exception there. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 7 uh, talks about that if there is a believing spouse, they have an unbelieving spouse. So they get saved and their spouse doesn't get saved. And so now you've got a household of one person who's a Christian and one person who's not, which would have happened in Roman society because not everyone would have gone together as a family. And if that happened, then what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you can read this to check it for yourself. What Paul says is, look, if you're married to an unbeliever, stay married to the unbeliever. Don't just say, okay, well, now that we're different, I'm going to leave. No, he says, you stay with that unbeliever. As much as depends upon you, you stay with an unbeliever, you seek peace with that unbeliever. But he does say there that if the unbeliever chooses to leave, if the unbeliever chooses to divorce, then don't fight it. So what does this mean? Well, there's a couple ideas then that, that okay, divorce can happen in the case of adultery or abandonment. Now, I'm going to say this. I am not going to be dogmatic in saying that that means that this is for sure, that if you feel abandoned or if you feel that you've been cheated on, you can get out of marriage. That's not the point. The point of these passages is for Jesus and Paul to show that God is not a cruel God that is going to expect you to say, stay in a situation that doesn't make sense or to stay in a situation in which you're being abused. There are things that God, is, He loves and there are things that are higher than even Marriage, and in Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7, he's giving possible reasons why it might be, might be, okay to be divorced. But here's the thing. The whole of Scripture teaches another thing. The whole of Scripture teaches that when there's a problem, when, there's, when we're sinned against, when there's an issue, we need to look to forgive and to be restored. And so what is that mean well listen there's much debate about divorce actually there's more debate about remarriage than there is about divorce some will say yes divorce can happen but what about remarrying i'm not going to get into all the, the the arguments both ways because honestly there are good biblical scholars that believe that you should never be remarried if you're divorced and there are good biblical scholars that say it's perfectly acceptable to be remarried after you're divorced as long as it was a divorce un under biblical grounds. 
And there's a whole spectrum of people. We could spend a whole hour just talking about all the nitty-gritties as we talk about these different things. But there is one thing that is certain. As we just saw Jesus talk about divorce, we also go back to the book of Malachi, chapter 2, verse 16, where it specifically says, I hate divorce, and that's God speaking. One thing we can know for sure is that divorce is hated by God, and it is a result of sin. It is a result of man's depravity. And we've also seen that resolution, restoration, and forgiveness. We could look at so many verses throughout Scripture that talk about that. We put all of this together, and this is what I want to say. I'm not here to debate whether divorce and remarriage is right, wrong, and, and go through every single circumstance we can go through. There's so many circumstances that we could unpack. But I want to stick to what I know is true based on Scripture. What I know is based on what Jesus said and what we see in the rest of Scripture, and that is this. That if divorce is to happen, it should be the absolute, absolute last resort. That every other thing should be explored before divorce would be an option. And for a Christian, I would say a Christian should not pursue divorce. A Christian should not go out of their way to pursue, to break what God has put together, even if they're sinned against. What greater testimony can it be to be praying for a spouse that has sinned against us and to be reaching out in forgiveness than to see that person restored to a right relationship with us and a right relationship with Jesus? That is a miracle that we can have a part of. But unfortunately... I think in today's world, this has been taken the other direction. And even as Christians, we've started to focus on what are the, what are the, what are the exceptions? We're focusing on what are the exceptions. Well, okay, I was cheated on, I can leave. Well, I was abandoned so I can divorce and get remarried and not have any issue. We shouldn't be focusing on the exceptions, we should be focusing on the rule. And what is God's rule? That marriage is between one man, one woman. We could talk about that whole thing too, but one man, one woman for life. And that is his goal. That is his standard. That is his hope. It's not perfectly going to happen because like I said, people will be abandoned. People will be cheated on and, and they'll be left. People will be abused. People will be in places where they cannot stay with their spouse i'm not saying that'll never happen but what i'm saying is it should be the last resort and not the first response as christians above all else we need to focus on the importance of marriage not on the ability to divorce to divorce you see we can't be looking for how can i get away with this we should be looking at how can i fight for this and what about the person who's been sinned against you know you uh, you you just um, you've been sinned against, you need to seek to forgive. You need to seek to re- resolve with that person. That doesn't mean you have to live with them and make it so that everything is perfect and everything seems right. You can figure out a way, but you need to work with that person and seek forgiveness and restoration in that relationship. Or maybe you're the person who is the other side and you've been the one to sin against your spouse. I'm not here to say 
that if you made some mistakes in your past and you were divorced and part of that was because of you or because there was no real reason or whatever it might be that somehow you are living in perpetual sin, there is forgiveness for sin. God says move forward in forgiveness. Just repent and turn towards me even in the process, even though you've made a mistake, even though you've sinned in the past, that doesn't mean that you are forsaken forever because I am a God of forgiveness and grace. And God says that throughout his word. So don't use this talk about divorce to feel like if you have been divorced that somehow you are a lesser Christian, you are a lesser person, or you don't deserve to be here. That's not the point. Jesus does forgive, Jesus restores, Jesus loves and has grace and mercy. But as we think about the world around us, we need to make sure that divorce is not the first option, but is the last resort. The Pharisees wanted to find a way out. That can't be our thoughts. That can't be our desires. That's what the world, that's what the world says, right? The world says, when my spouse stops making me happy, I'm out. The world says, my spouse does one thing wrong, I'm out. The world says, ah, it just doesn't feel right, so I'm out. The world says, I'm just going to live with the person I love because I don't want to have to worry about getting out of it legally if I decide I don't like them anymore. This is what the world says. But unfortunately, a lot of these worldly thoughts have crept into the church that somehow divorce is acceptable. <clears throat> that it should be something that we should just, that we should pursue and not think anything of it. That is not our calling. Our calling is to preserve God's plan as best we possibly can. I want to say a few things because a lot of you might start tuning out because you're not divorced. You're not thinking about divorce. Maybe you're here and you're not even thinking about marriage at this point. But what is the greater context? What does self-justification look like if it's not in divorce? See, the general question that the Pharisees were asking was what can we do to get out of marriage? What can we do to get around God's plan? What can we do? You know, staying with the theme of relationships, one of the questions that always gets asked me as a young teen, as a teen and young adult pastor is... Um, how far is too far in my relationship with my, with my boyfriend or my girlfriend or my fiancé? You realize the question is wrong. Just like the question of the Pharisees is, how can I get out of, how can I get out of marriage? Uh, how far is too far is saying, how much can I do with my significant other before it's actually sin? We're trying to get around God's plan of purity, right? Like, how far can I go with, until I'm just right to the line before I'm unpure? I can do whatever it takes up to that point, but what is that line? I'm going to try to get around God's standard of absolute purity by just trying to figure out a way around it. That's a question that can be asked. There are other things, and, I, and I've said this before, and, and I said earlier I wasn't going to talk about money, but there is a little bit of this. Like, How much um, can I give to kind of be okay but not totally give sacrificially in a way that I know God wants me to. I'm going to try to get around it by just giving when I can or giving when I feel like it. Maybe it's church attendance. Maybe it's like, how many times can I miss church? This is a good... This is, how many times can I miss church before God is angry with me? <laughs> now, listen, I'm not trying to say every time you miss church that God is up there steaming and ready to squash you, all right? Um, but what I am saying is, Hebrews chapter 10 is very clear and it says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. So we take that command, we take God's, what God wants, and we say, all right, 
yeah, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. That's great. Perfect. That's what God wants. Cool. But how many times can I miss before I actually am against his standard? How many times? Or do I have to go four times a week? Do I have to go two times a week? How, or, or do I just go once a month and that's okay? Or three times a month? It's only one time a month I'm missing. That's not the right attitude. And I could come up with so many other examples. You know, how close, and there's a, there's a, there's a, I'm going to give this example. I may have given this before when I preached. I know I have when I've taught teens, but I heard this story. It was told to me that it was a true story. I can't verify that this is a true story, but there was a bunch of guys in a car that were driving down a backcountry road that were drunk, and they decided that they were going to play a fun game, and the game was going to be, hey, let's hang out the back window head first and see who can be brave enough to get their face closest to the road as we go. The first person did it, and he was, you know, six inches away. The next person did it four inches away. The third person hangs out the window, and because he has no depth perception, is trying to get as close to the road as possible without actually hitting the road, and I think you know the end of the story. His head hits the road, and he's, di- he, he's killed instantly because he was trying to get close enough to the road without actually getting to the road. But see, that's what we're trying to do in our lives too. What can I do to get around God's standard but not completely sin? And that's what the Pharisees are doing and sometimes we can do the same thing. We can justify what we're doing, make it sound better than what it really is. And I don't know what it is for you. I could come up with all sorts of illustrations even from my life and we could talk about that but we don't have time. But think about it. What is it that you're trying to justify in your life? Just as the Pharisees were trying to justify divorce to get around God's standard, how are we trying to get around God's standard? With all this being said, though, the main thing we understand about discipleship and Jesus' discussion about divorce is that our lives should be marked by sacrificing our own feelings to follow God's plan and not try to justify a way around what he has said. Don't rely on our feelings or what man says or the world says it's okay, so it should be okay for us. No, what is God's standard? What does he say? That's how we justify every decision we make. We don't justify it by trying to figure out how our feelings wrap up into it and how we can get around his standard. And as I said, this wasn't just about divorce, but it was about the ability, the attempt to justify ourselves. I want to go on to one more section and then we'll end for today and we'll finish next week. As we move on in chapter 10, verse 13, after Jesus talks about divorce, kind of seems like a parenthetical here, but then he continues on. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. All right, so if Jesus talking about divorce was kind of weird in our context, why are we talking about little kids that are running to Jesus? Well, we're going to see that discipleship means sacrificing self-reliance. Discipleship means sacrificing self-reliance. We see very simply, as we just read, that the disciples turn away children from blessing. There are children coming to be blessed by Jesus, and the disciples say, no, <clears throat> stay away. Jesus doesn't want children right now. Why would they say that? Surely, in their minds, Jesus had much more important things to worry about than little children. 
We looked at this last week that in society, and I said something a little wrong, uh, in, in society of that day, the, the Hebrew society valued children. I said last week they didn't really value children. They valued children, but they only valued children in the sense that they were, they were continuing on the family. Like it was kind of like, good thing you had a kid because now they can continue on your legacy and your name. But in Roman society, kids were, that's where they were really put down. Kids were nothing in Roman society. We see examples of in Roman society, if, if the kid was not the way you want him to be. Maybe you wanted a boy and you got a girl, you could get rid of the girl. That's how they felt. They were property more than anything else. But in any case, in that society, children are the least, as we've talked about before. And they start running up to Jesus and the disciples say, look, Jesus has more things to worry about, more important things to worry about than kids. And the disciples really were relying on their own knowledge that they thought they knew best. They were relying on themselves. They didn't ask Jesus, notice. They didn't say, hey, Jesus, all these kids are here and they want to come see you. Is that okay? No, the disciples take it upon themselves and they say, no, 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 no. No, we know better. Kids, stay away from Jesus. Jesus rebukes their ignorance. Jesus rebukes their ignorance and he affirms his love and care for those others might see as unimportant. The disciples see the children as unimportant. Jesus says, no, let them come to me. Do not stop them from coming to me. I want to bless them. I want to love them. I want to care for them. Even though you might not want to, I do. And let's be, let's be very clear here. Jesus is angry with his disciples. Jesus is upset that they are willing to turn children away. Probably because just a few pages ago, he already talked about children, and he said how important it is to look out for children and to allow even the least of these into the kingdom. And so Jesus is upset with his disciples, and then he uses this whole situation to teach about discipleship. Jesus compares saving faith to children. Jesus compares saving faith to children. What he says here in verse 15, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jesus says if you want to be saved, you need to come as a child. Now be very careful here. This does not mean that you need to be childish, but you need to be coming with the heart of a child. And what is the heart of a child? Think about your children Think about children you know. Just think about children in general. Children, although sometimes they might not realize it, are completely dependent upon their parents. Children are humble in the sense that they can't do anything on, the, on their own. Think of infants. Think of toddlers. That's, that's the age we're really talking about mostly. Infants and toddlers that are coming to Jesus. There's innocence there, but it's not just about innocence. It's about full dependence. It's about full trust. They put themselves, they, they fully trust Jesus to give him a blessing. They're flocking to him, they're running to him because they know that he has something they need and he is de- they are depending upon him and trusting him completely. And that's the point that Jesus is making. That self-reliance, relying on yourself that you know better, relying on yourself to get through life, is not self-sacrifice, but relying on Him as a child. As a child that has no other option other than to run to Jesus and beg for His blessing and trust Him completely and rely on Him. That is saving faith. 
not holding anything back, not thinking that we need to prove anything, but just to come to Jesus, run to Him, and ask Him for blessing, for salvation. That is true faith. And so Jesus illustrates the need for full reliance on Him through children. Now next week we're going to look at two other areas of discipleship. We're going to see that discipleship means sacrificing our self-sufficiency, which is very related to what we just talked about, and discipleship means sacrificing self-promotion. We're going to look at those things as we look at the rest of Mark chapter 10 next week. But what have we seen so far today? Well, the first question we all need to ask is, are we truly living a life of self-sacrifice? Are we living a life of self-sacrifice that is willing to sacrifice our comforts, our cares, our wants, our needs, our desires, all of those things, are we willing to put those on the altar for Jesus and say, look, I will live however Jesus wants me to. I will suffer and serve however I need to to follow in his footsteps. Are we truly living a life of self-sacrifice? And maybe there's people, there's, there are those here today that aren't living a life of self-sacrifice because they haven't even received the sacrifice that Jesus has made for them. Because Jesus made the ultimate self-sacrifice. Jesus again will talk about this. Uh, he'll say again in chapter 10 that I'm about to die, I'm about to suffer for you. Jesus died for us. He lived a perfect life to die for our sins, to take the punishment that God required for sin. He died on the cross. He rose again. He sacrificed himself for you and for me if you'll come in faith like a child to trust in him, to ask him to take your life and to live for him and not ourselves any longer. Next question we need to ask as we think about this idea of divorce, do we try to justify our actions through man's viewpoint or through God's viewpoint? Do we try to justify our actions through man's viewpoint or God's? Let me implore all of us to look to God's word, know what he says about every decision we have to make, whether it's divorce or whether it's anything else, and make sure that we are filtering it through his word and his plan. Like I said, we're going to face situations in life because of sin because of the fallenness of humanity, because of depravity. We are going to face issues, and there will be divorce. There will be problems. There is sin. There are things that have been brought into this world. But we need to be looking and trying to pursue God at all, as much as we can. Pursue Him. Pursue His Word. Not focus on exceptions. Not focus on loopholes. But focus on His plan. So are we really justifying our actions through God's viewpoint or are we looking other places? And finally, are we truly relying on Jesus as a child? Even if you've come to Jesus in faith and maybe you've run to him and asked him for faith, but now you're living a life in which you, have, you just always are questioning God or you're just not fully relying upon Jesus and you're not giving up yourself because you don't really trust him, then make today the day you repent of that and say, Jesus, I give you everything. I trust you completely. I want to depend on you for everything. I want to rely on you for everything, just as a child would. Then make today the day you decide to ask God to help you to trust Him more as a child. Those are the things we can look at today. We will continue one more week on what discipleship truly looks like. But we've seen that self-sacrifice today looks like sacrificing self-justification and sacrificing self-reliance. With all those things to think about, 
Let's stand and sing our final song.